Hey guys, it's Dave. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We have a three-parter here today for the podcast. I'm going to talk a little bit about Korean barbecue, and then we're going to go into supercomputer special correspondent Isaac Lee talking about life in Korea and how they are kicking the shit out of COVID where America is shitting the bed. And then we are going to get into the great, great interview with the amazing Jimmy Kimmel. And we talk about a lot of things, fly fishing, being dads, what we cook for Thanksgiving, and more importantly, me being the insane person and winning a million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire. Yes, that actually happened. And that's all coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always. Uh, wanted to start off talking about Korean barbecue. In this conversation with Jimmy Kimmel, I'm going to talk about how, for Thanksgiving, I didn't get a turkey, and we got barbecue from parks in Los Angeles. But a lot of towns have Korean barbecue, and with COVID, you may or not, may not be able to dine outside and cook it outside, but you can buy the marinated meats and all the banchan from these restaurants and bring it home. And it may seem a little bit weird to cook Korean barbecue for Thanksgiving, something that I did. It may even seem stranger to do it during the holiday season, but I want to talk quickly about what Korean barbecue is, at least to me and to Korean culture. If you ask most people, what Korean food is, they'll probably say, oh, it's kimchi. And then the second thing they'll probably say is Korean barbecue, more specifically kalbi, because it's fucking delicious. It is simply delicious. But it's not something people grow up eating in Korea. It is reserved and has historically been a very special occasion kind of thing. And that's why eating Korean barbecue for a Korean family or Korean American family isn't that crazy. To go out to a restaurant and to grill it on a tabletop, that was always what we would do. You know, going to Ooze Garden or Chinese restaurant was what we would do if something happened, like a birthday, or we wanted to go out once a month or every couple months or so. That was like the family standby. But 
to get Korean barbecue, that was the the special treat. And that probably only happened two or three times a year. And I think as we got older and as my dad made a little bit more money, that became not more frequent, but I don't know. It was more than two times a year for sure. And I don't want people to think that Korean food is just Korean barbecue. There is so much more to that. And in fact, most Korean food is seafood based and more specifically vegan slash vegetarian. And it's delicious. And there's so much more to Korean barbecue. But don't forget that for Korean folks, a lot of people may be celebrating with Korean barbecue. They may be cooking marinated short rib or samgyeopsal, like pork belly. Um, and you can cook it at home. And that's what we did. I, I did it on a, on a green egg. And I love Korean barbecue for this reason. Everyone's eating the same thing. Everybody. But you can customize it yourself right? You can tailor it how you want to eat it. You can, if you want to eat it a little bit more well done, you can. If you want to eat it with a bit of kimchi, you can. If you want to make a sam, you can. If you don't want to eat sam, you can just eat it with pop. If you don't want to put the samjang on it, if you want to grill your garlic a little bit, you can. There's infinite amounts of like uh, combinations that you create in barbecue. And it is truly one of the best ways to eat. I love it so much. I wish I actually had a tabletop grill to cook this in my house. That would be sick. But uh, what I did was run back and forth outside, cooking the meats on the grill, and then bringing it to the dinner table, and then you know brushing off the pork to cook the beef and so on and so forth. And the other thing, which we probably should talk about another day, is naengmyeon. I think you have to eat mul naengmyeon at the end of all Korean barbecue meals, that is not something that happens a lot. And I didn't make any moon naengmyeon and I re- I'm already regretting it because that's how you finish eating Korean barbecue. And I have been to Korean barbecue restaurants with people that are not Korean. I won't tell their skin color, but you could probably guess they don't like cold pickled beef broth noodle soup, but that's the only way to finish a Korean barbecue meal. And if you're not doing it, you're not doing it right. Now on to our show. We are joined with Isaac Lee, who, if you've been listening to the past few podcasts, said that he would be calling from Korea and keeping his schedule the same. What a goddamn (laughs) lunatic. Yeah. Because it is currently Thursday morning. Yeah, 5 a.m. We're recording this. On Wednesday, the 25th of November, and he's recording this 13 plus hours ahead. 17 uh, hours. What is the time? Yeah. Oh 17 my God, because you're ahead. on the West Coast. Yeah. Holy shit. You're crazy, man. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel crazy. I feel crazy. I wake up at 2 a.m. every day. I log on to work uh, and then <laughs> I go to bed at 5 p.m. So. so were you trying not to even adjust at all? No, no, I did not try to adjust at all. I just, you know, slept my normal... I left from Los Angeles at 10.40 p.m. And I just slept the way that I would sleep at night. And then I woke up and I <laughs> came here and I slept at the normal Los Angeles time. And that's, that's my schedule. And before we get into your schedule and why you're there, you got on a plane, mm-hmm. you landed at which airport? Incheon. Haneda? Incheon. No, that's Incheon. Jesus. Haneda yeah. is Tokyo. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Very different. Incheon. Very different. Very different, and man, I could get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Incheon. I used to land in Kimpo Airport. That's oh, yeah, how old yeah, yeah. I am. That doesn't even exist anymore, right? I think it still exists, but it's not the the international airport of South Korea anymore. And Incheon Airport is amazing. Oh, <laughs> an incredible airport. Yeah, one of the but best. People need to realize that American airports are like the laughing stock of airports in the international world. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, compared to even like Heathrow or any of the European airports, like. Heathrow sucks too, man. Charles de Gaulle. I mean, that's sucks. what I'm saying. Like, even Heathrow is better than most American airports, yeah. in my opinion. But you land, then what happens? Then uh, <laughs> there is a very, very long process in making sure that I, as a dirty American, am not bringing COVID 19 into their country. So, what? Like, what are they doing? Well, first of all, you get your temperature taken. It's kind of all a blur, but they take your temperature, they make you fill out a bunch of forms because I have family in Korea and I'll be and I, I would be quarantining with them I had to fill out all these forms saying that yes I am authorized to quarantine at this location yes we will be keeping all these rules I have to sign it's all very very formal and very strict and they make me sign that I will get tested and you get tested no swab no swab and um, something in the in the back of my throat as well I mean, I've gotten tested before in the States. I mean, I got tested last week before I even flew. So it's a familiar feeling, but it's not pleasant, obviously. Yeah, and then my mom picked me up. I sat in the back of the car, windows down, and I'm now quarantining at their house. Oh, well, you know what? I, I, missed a, I missed a very crucial part of this, which is I had to download an app on my phone where they can track me and that I have to report three times a day my temperature and any symptoms that I might be having. Wow. And then they send you a kit with a thermometer, they send you a bunch of documents and information. I have to sign something that says that I have received the self-quarantine instructions and that I will comply. They also sent me a pamphlet to deal with stress and a, a little sheet trying to care for my mental health as well. So that was pretty nice. I did not even know that, that that's something that existed. Well, the true Korean way to deal with stress is a bottle of soju. So they didn't do that. So that, that's, yeah, a, no. that's a a leaflet, pocketbook, paper full of shit, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Koreans no. dealing with stress in a productive way. That's that's laughable. Yeah. Um, your parents don't have to get, your mom doesn't have to get checked. No, they don't have to get tested. Um, so I don't understand that. Doesn't that make sense that everyone should be quarantined then because they're staying at, you're staying in the same house? Or yeah, just, so they're not, they're not in contact with me at all. How does the government know that? The government will have just basically have to trust us. So here's the thing. Here's the thing I noticed, and I tweeted about this. The Korean people in general, the Korean government also, tend to just trust that everyone is taking this very, 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 very seriously. And they are, for the most part. And so, of course, there are these kind of regulations in place. There are these policies in place. They don't need to enforce it because everyone's terrified of this thing. Because everyone, no one wants this to spread here. And everyone thinks this is a huge deal. And this is the contrast that I'm thinking. Is that like, because everyone takes this so seriously, it's kind of like a mild annoyance. It's like a nuisance that people just have to just live with. It's kind of like, all right, yeah, you go get tested. We're all social distancing. We're all wearing masks. We don't talk to each other. There's like a trust. And it's a weird byproduct of fear is that we have, we have trust that everyone else has this fear. And therefore, we're, none of us are going to try to mess this up. So you haven't even stepped outside. You've been no. in that room I'm looking at yeah. for a week, basically, already. Yes. Are you losing your mind? 
Not really. I mean, I have the internet. Um, I'm doing my job, so I'm like occupied for at least eight hours a day. I'm not really losing my mind. I'm also really good at being solitary. My friends know this. I'm a very, very private person, and I tend to only stay <laughs> in my room, anyways, even when I'm in Los Angeles. So, I mean, if you wanted to know a little bit more about the COVID protocol in America, in Korea, we did a podcast with Dr. Jim Kim, mm-hmm. and the reason why Korea just kicked the shit out of it was a MERS a few years back. And And effectively what happened was in SARS, but MERS was more recent and like 53 people died or something like that. And was relatively small in Korea, but it scared the shit out of uh, the Korean government enough that effectively they gave the Korean version of the CDC total control and power to do whatever they needed to do to mobilize the country to combat this. And uh, I feel hopeful that the Biden administration will be able to adopt a lot of the things that Korea has done, including contact tracing. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're listening to Isaac Lee. I want to get updates, man, while you're there for, yeah. you know, basically, this is how crazy is. He's there for his brother's wedding and then it's done and he's going to fly back to America. Yeah, yeah. I'll be here for six weeks. Um, I, I do want to say this, like, flying during a pandemic, not a good idea. Seeing your family who are older during a pandemic Definitely not a good idea. I said no to this when my parents told me to come. But I came because I, I literally, it's my brother's wedding and I would be excommunicated from the family if I did not come to see my brother. So that's why I'm going through a you know very strict 15-day self-quarantine. This is why I'm keeping Pacific time in Korea. I'm, I'm living 17 hours ahead, but also 17 hours behind. And this is kind of like an extraordinary case. And I also... Because I have family in Korea, I was allowed to not go to a facility. And I believe my parents had to sign some waivers saying that it's okay for me to stay with them, that they will be keeping all the rules, they will be distancing. And also, so if you are, you don't have family there, the government puts you in like in a, a facility. Hotel. Do you, yeah. You have to pay for that or you the have to pay for, pay, that. pay for that? You have to pay for that. Wow. Well, listen, I want constant updates about life, what life is like, because life is pretty normal in Seoul and oh, Korea yeah. in general. One of my friends, one of my buddies from college, she teaches English here. She's white American. And I've been texting with her, like, how's it been? Like, throughout this whole pandemic. And she was like, it's normal. Obviously, everyone wears masks, but that's about it. And, uh, you know, there are some things in place they called it the untacked thing where no contact. Also, a lot of, like, the drive-through stuff has been installed in, in many hospitality institutions. But that's about it. And everyone's kind of out and about. Well, I know people are tired of COVID talk, but I think we need to look at Asia to see how effective, you know, treating this can be. And this is a, a weird segue into a conversation with with Jimmy. <laughs> well, there Kimmel, is no segue. There is no segue. There's Let's no not way. Try There's no way. I, I really, I really just wanted to do it to. I don't know a lot of people listening to this know anybody that flew to Korea or another country that takes it as seriously. And I just wanted to remind people that cases are going through the roof here in America. And um, we need to take this a lot more seriously if we're going to get back to to normal. So thank you for giving us updates. And I want continued updates about what life is like, because I can't wait for that to happen here too. I will. Oh, and actually, before we get into our interview with Jimmy Kimmel, I do need to know something quickly for the listeners. We had some technical difficulties with Jimmy's audio. It happens. We're in a pandemic. So 
he's actually going to cut out twice and you're going to hear three different versions of his audio. But every time he cuts out, I'm going to play this sound effect. So do not be alarmed and uh, let's get into it. You've made a career doing radio before you did TV. This has got to be old hat to you. Yeah, it's kind of, I should have worn a hat. I did not brush my hair at all. <laughs> That's one of the great things about radio. It doesn't matter what you look like. Also, nobody's, you can't tell if people are laughing or not. So you just assume they are. Well, I'm happy you are on the show. You had actually, I was always nervous. I always wanted to ask Jimmy to be on the podcast. And then you're the one that approached me like a year ago. He's like, hey, uh, you should ask me to be on your podcast. So here we are. I have a thing that, um, you know, I have a lot of friends who have podcasts and, uh, and some of them are fun to listen to. And some of them are just them talking to themselves in a room. But yes, I don't want to be asked to do them. But then at a certain point, if I'm not asked, I go, why haven't I not been asked to do this podcast? <laughs> Eventually, insecurity overwhelms me and I will say something. Oh, man. I think by the time this airs, people will have already heard the news. I was on your show. You're the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And we'll talk about all the other stuff after this. But this is, this is the juicy bit. Yeah. I won. I won the million dollar prize on your show. It's never happened. We've never, uh, in the history of the show, going all the way back to the beginning of, of time, which is the Regis era, no celebrity player has ever won a million dollars. And I think only six players have won a million dollars. And this is a show that it wasn't just on ABC every night for many years. It was on in syndication. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, really, like you've broken some new ground here. <laughs> I still don't understand that it happened. It was... The closest thing I've ever done to doing acid without doing acid or mushrooms because it was the most out-of-body experience. I don't know what happened. I still don't understand it. I'm talking to you. It happened. But I, in my mind, I'm imagining it didn't happen because it's just too hard to believe. It was even weirder because we had no studio audience. So, you know, <laughs> typically you would imagine the place going absolutely berserk, but it was just the three of us, just me, you and Alan going berserk <laughs> and a giant check comes in. I didn't think I would sign that giant check. I mean, it's funny because, you know, sometimes the questions get hard. The last five questions are hard. And it just so happens every once in a while, something kind of falls into your wheelhouse or your expert's wheelhouse, or your excellent lifeline, which, you know, I, most people don't even try for the million-dollar question. That's the thing. They don't miss the million-dollar question. They, they go, you know what? There's such an emotional release after you get that half a million dollars, and especially if it's something that you're really thinking about and slaving over, that there's just this kind of, I think, human dynamic where you go, forget it. I'm done. I, <laughs> I am finished with this. Half a million dollars is enough, and that's that. But I was so impressed that you went for it. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. It's insane that I went for it. I have no reason why. And I remember looking at your face being like, you're crazy. <laughs> you should definitely not go for this. <laughs> I have no reason. I, I don't even understand why. I remember just forcing myself to go for it before I could regret it. It's a difficult but thing. I didn't know because, the answer. Especially when one of the contestants is my friend, uh, as you are. <laughs> I, I want to help, but I can't help. And my fear is that 
I will actually ruin the game for you by saying something that I shouldn't. And then maybe there's a question that you know the answer to, and we have to swap out a question that you don't know the answer to. So I just sit there. I try to keep whatever, whatever poker face I have. I try to keep that on. (laughs) But you don't know the answer. You didn't know the answer. Or do you see the answer? I don't see the the answers beforehand, but some of them, I just know, you know, some of the answers I know. And sometimes even more frequently, I know what the wrong and I know that something is not the answer, but sometimes I just know the answer. And so I have to sit there and hope that they use a lifeline on me in that situation. And then hope they don't use it where I don't know the answer. When you told me that no celebrity has ever won a million dollars. And I asked something like, has anyone tried to go for it? And you're like, there's only one person that's tried to answer it. And they answered it incorrectly. That was Norm MacDonald with Regis. And he was going to say the right answer, but Regis talked him out of it. That totally freaked me out. <laughs> well, however much it freaked you out, you still went for it. It didn't freak it, it didn't. You know, I have to say when I, I actually thought of asking you to be on the show, for a few reasons, I knew we'd have fun. I knew you're smart and I knew you'd probably do well. But I also know you have that streak in you that you might <laughs> be the one who goes for the million dollars. And I don't know that I can say that about any of the other people that I know well who've been on the show. I think especially when you're playing for charity, because it's one thing to lose that kind of money for yourself. It's much worse thing to lose it for charity. <laughs> much worse. Bunchers. And uh, my Asian gambling genes are very strong in me because that's what overrided any common sense. If anyone's seen me gamble, and a lot of people have, I, I have uh, no control over myself. And that's ultimately the reason why I decided to go for it. <laughs> you don't seem to have a lot of self-control in any areas as, what I've, as far as what I've witnessed. Even fishing, somehow you are a maniac on a river. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I mean, we're recording this a couple days before, day before Thanksgiving. So I haven't even seen the episode. So it's still an out-of-body experience. But I did watch the first sort of eight questions or five questions that I was on last week. And having the break in between the two episodes has been killing me. But I watched it with my wife, and she knows me better than anyone. She's like, you really didn't know that answer. She knew how stressed out I was because... Having watched Millionaire, having played the game on the app, it's a completely different thing when you're watching at home versus being in that chair and that music. It's like a sensory deprivation tank because they're playing the music loud, the lights are on, you're getting interrogated, and you forget. They tell you, like, you can take as much time as you want, right? There's no clock. And I just was such a stress ball. And the moment when you asked me, uh, what's the name for uh, children that eat all their food on their plate? You know, and I honestly didn't know the answer because I didn't know it. And I was like, oh, my God, could be this, could be that. I was like, this is going to be so embarrassing. And that was that was that was one of the easy questions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the problem is I stressed myself out and watching it. I saw how stressed out I was and I still can't believe I made it. It was so lucky. I was so goddamn lucky with so many of those questions. Um it was a confluence I, I, of of intelligence, experience, and yes, yeah, some good fortune. And but more than anything, balls. I mean, really. <laughs> I was I was sitting there going, "What do you do?" I I would not have done the same thing. I would have said, you know, unless 
I was ninety percent sure. I don't know that I would have. I would have went for that because you <laughs> would have lost four hundred sixty-eight thousand dollars. You know, I would have been in a bad place. <laughs> My reasoning for doing this was Mina said it. She said Harrison, and she said it with such confidence. But we later found out if she didn't get cut off, she would have said, but, and I definitely wouldn't have answered Harrison, but my reasoning for answering Harrison as the president that didn't like electricity was simply because I had never heard of this president before. (laughs) That was was it. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know, it's a lot of confidence to have in your friend. And I am still so impressed that she came up with Harrison. That that's somebody who did a lot of reading. She's incredibly smart. She's the, as she says, she went to school in New Haven. Code word for she's smart and she went to Yale. Like I knew she had it in the bag and I was so lucky. I got really lucky with Mina and Alan was a great, great partner. He was. He was probably of, of, you know, on the show, you get to bring a friend for the first 10 questions. I think he was the best friend. He was the best friend of the whole run. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean... <laughs> Just talking about it, it gives me goosebumps. And I remember you bringing the check out. And the next thing I knew, I'm driving back home being like, who do I tell about? I, <laughs> this is the craziest thing. I didn't even tell my wife or my in-laws until you guys sent the check over. And they're like, what the heck? <laughs> what is this? I was like, sorry, guys. I, I won who was a millionaire. They were incredulous. I'm curious about how that works. So they actually send the check to you to give to the charity. Well, I found out uh, before I got the check, I got contacted by Southern Smoke saying, hey, they wanted our account information to wire the money. I was like, I don't know how much information was told to them. So I I had to like, I was like, "Uh, you should just watch the show, I guess. I I don't even know. I didn't even follow up. I was like, well, that's good that they contacted them for their wiring information. And then like an hour later, someone messaged over the, the, the actual like five by three foot check, which I have on the wall now. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> that was fun. I mean, that really was exciting. That's what the show is, is supposed to be. Have you ever had an experience like that in Las Vegas? Anything even like slightly comparable to that where you had a lot of money on, on one hand or one spin or something? Yeah. Like I, I remember being in a ha- like going all in on a blackjack hand, but there were like eight of us and we all put our money in, you know, it wound up being a lot and we won it. But here's the problem. We wound up doing it again after that and we lost. So it's like, <laughs> but it wasn't a million dollars. Like, oh my God, I, I just still can't believe what the hell I was thinking or doing because it's clear I should have just stopped at $500,000 and be sensible. Like Anderson Cooper, he stopped at half a million. Uh, there's a couple people that have stopped at half a million. You know, I just, I think it's scary to me that the world will now see what a deranged lunatic I actually <laughs> yeah, am. I know, right, right. <laughs> yeah, if I was an investor, I'd be careful with you, David. <laughs> oh my God. So, I wanted to raise some awareness for the restaurant industry, something you're very passionate about. And I was really happy that we could do it because Southern Smoke was unable to do their annual charity drive because of COVID. And it's one of the very few charities for the restaurant industry where if you contact them and you get approved, you get money as like a grant directly to help you get out of whatever hole you're in. So I was I was over the moon that we could do that because it's been a ridiculously tough year and 
And that's what I think I was, I was like, man, I want the world to see just what people in this industry would do, <laughs> you know, like, like that's how we treat things. And I don't think I'm the best representation of it, but I was, I was glad that not only was a million bucks, we were able to, you know, highlight that realize. Yeah, Southern smoke, which is a great charity. And I also hope that, you know, people don't go, oh, well, they got a million dollars. That's all they need. Because right now we tape that over the summer. And uh, I think we both probably hoped, thought that we'd be on the uh, on the other end of this by now. And of course, uh, that isn't the case at all. So it couldn't have come at a better time. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Look to your left, look to your right. Yep, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that most green powders and probiotics don't survive digestion? Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is engineered in a two-in-one capsule to safeguard viability through digestion for complete delivery to your colon. A broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole body benefits, including gut, heart, and skin health. Visit seed.com slash Dave Chang and use the code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. That's code 25DAVECHANG to start seeding today. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, everyone asks me, who's your role model? Like, who do you sort of aspire? And I don't want to be a late night host or anything, but when I think about people that are genuinely happy, my answer to people is always Jimmy Kimmel. He seems to have figured out how to do what he wants to do and be a good person along the way and like grow as an individual, right? Like you weren't this way. You weren't like a perfect individual 25, 30 years ago. You've somehow become a very empathetic, funny, loving person. And everyone loves you because of that. And I, I really use you as my benchmark of like, if Jimmy can get there, then like there's a chance for me. Well, that's very nice. That's a lot of pressure. I can assure you that not everyone loves me. <laughs> I think it's about 50% that don't. But um, And I will say this. I, you know, there have been some notable incidents or whatever you want to call them along the way. But I feel like I've always been exactly like this. I've always had empathy for people. I've always, I feel like I was raised well. My parents are very good people. I just think that maybe some of the these comedy bits that are confused for you, you know, for many years on the radio, I played a character. It, the character's name was Jimmy, the sports guy, but it wasn't me. It was not me at all. It was the character was a guy who lived in his parents' basement and had a gambling problem, you know, so and who was obsessed with sports. And I'm real. I've never been any of those things. It just worked well for the radio shows that that I was on. So. I think that doing a talk show has changed over the years and it used to be just joke, 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 joke. And maybe over the last seven or eight years for reasons good and bad, 
people get to know me a little bit more, who I really am a little bit more. And some people like it and some people don't like it. I appreciate that you do like it. And uh, I'm not always happy all the time, but I'm generally a happy guy. And I think especially when you see me, you know, whether it's uh, eating at one of your restaurants or us fishing or just hanging out, that's when I'm probably at my happiest. So don't feel like you have that I'm not happy no, because I'm no, not always I, happy. I know that. No one is happy all the time. But what I mean is your outlook and how you treat things and just sort of live your life, I think, is of all the people. And I feel like I know a lot of people. It is a nice balance for me to be like, OK, that's something I can try to pattern it or at least have the, the outlook and the approach. You know, at least one example of that is I don't know of a single person really one person that answers texts or emails more quickly than you. The world doesn't understand how prompt you are. It is fucking insane because it's sometimes you're like, there's no way Jimmy's doing this. And there's got to be some assistant with his password that is just replying to everything. How the hell do you do this? I do it all myself. There's nobody, no one else is looking at my emails. Um, it's a couple of things, really. One of them is anxiety, and I don't like to be late for things. I don't want people to think I don't have time for them or I'm better than they are. I can't be bothered to be there when we've mutually decided that we're going to be there. And I also don't want people to think I'm ignoring them. So, But I also get a huge number of emails. I'll get three to 400 emails, and 200 of them I have to answer every day. So a lot of it is just... I know that if I don't answer it now, it might be a couple of days if it slips below the line. Now, sometimes I don't have the answer and I will wait, but typically I will have the answer and I just reply right away because it's, it makes my life. I think that's the way to go is not to sit and chew on this stuff. It's to just take care of it, get it done and keep moving (laughs) because I don't have a choice. I have a show every night. So I have to, you know, I just have to get the, sometimes I'll wait till after the show and respond to personal emails, but usually I just try to get it done right there. Some people are put off by how short my emails are. And, um, and I understand that because sometimes people write me like a four paragraph email. And I'm like, yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. And then they're like, what the hell was that? Hey, but you know, with emails, you read things that aren't there. Yeah. But again, this is an example where I use you as like a platonic ideal. I hate responding to things. I think I'm pretty good at it. And I get a ton of emails, ton of text messages. And every time I'm like, I'll get to this later. I literally think Jimmy Kimmel pops in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, if Jimmy does it, if Jimmy can do it, I can do it. So you are the reason why I try to respond to everybody as quickly as possible. Because then I, if you don't have an excuse, I don't have an excuse. So that's the way I look at it. And on the other on the, on the other side, I do. I have a weird admiration for people who will take weeks to respond because I know <laughs> that probably they're healthier than I am. And that, you know, they get to it when they get to it. And, you know, it's funny. Zach Galifianakis has this thing where he thinks it's rude to send someone an email after 5 p.m. And this fascinates me because the idea that it's not like an emails it comes crashing through your window. You you get to it when you decide to get to it. But I and one time, I don't know, there was some answer I knew. He's like, yeah, I don't want to send it to you after five. I'm like, what? 
<laughs> that's when I do see the emails. It, it's an interesting, everyone has their own approach, I guess. I got a good Galifianakis story who I haven't seen in ages. And I don't even know if he even remembers me, but there was a period where he was in New York City quite a bit. And we were opening up Co in 2008. And him and David Cross, I think we're doing something together, but he would always walk past the restaurant and peek in. And this was opening night of our 12-seat restaurant. And uh, this is pre-the um, Vegas movies. Uh, my God. The Hangover. The Hangover. Pre-The Hangover. So a lot of people didn't realize who he was. And he walks in <laughs> opening night. All these foodies are there. And he's like, hey, I just wanted to give you a pair of tube socks. <laughs> <laughs> And he put it on the table, looked around. There's like one of these things and he walked straight out. I was like, what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> you can believe this story. You know that he would do something like this. 100%. Yeah. And he knows, he, you know what? He knows that this is going to delight you for the whole rest of your life. That's why he does that sort of thing. He's the best. He is a, he, he might be my role model. I don't know. He is a very kind person. He is uh, and. I think there was a time in comedy where you didn't find that many of those people. I don't know that, that that's true anymore. And I think even some of the people that weren't kind have, have come around to it and realized that it's not a competition. But um, Zach is one of the best guys for sure. Well, if you say he's a well-adjusted, happy comic, what is it about comics for the most part that are brooding and sad individuals? <laughs> I don't think that's true anymore. I think that was... Um, I think that was probably true, although I can't speak to it from experience at one point. And maybe it will be true again. I think a lot of, honestly, I think a lot of comics adopt that persona or adopted that persona at a certain time when the world of comedy was pretty dark. And it'll probably come back in style at some point. But I don't think that most of it is real. I think some of it certainly is. But I think it's uh, it's just a cool thing to be to pretend you're you're dark and brooding. But we see what happens to the people that are truly dark and truly brooding, and and generally they die. <laughs> I think there's a historical evidence for that. Yeah. Speaking of things that are not true, but broadcast to be true are a lot of well-known celebrities that are into food. Like it's a very cool thing to say you're into food and you cook this and you make that. I think a lot of that is not true. I think it's just something that they're doing to sort of make it their brand a little bit more well-known or diverse. I don't know if people know how much into food you are. Like you are, you know more and you are a better cook than I'd say most celebrities by far, you're in the very, very top tier, and you have more kitchen equipment than anybody, even professional chefs I, I know of. You're genuinely into food. I love it. I I'm not just into food. I love I love the community of chefs, and it, they do remind me of comedians in a lot of ways. I think there are a lot of similarities there. I think that chefs are among the most charitable people. I think that. I have that same like enthusiasm for something very simple that a lot of chefs have. I think maybe that's something that it's something that I, I'd never considered as a career, but had I known what I know now, maybe it's something I would have thought about because I think I have the qualities that you need that kind of like um, zeal and um, attention to detail. And, and it's one of the few things that I still 
am interested in learning about uh, as far as skills go. You know, you reach a certain age and you're like, I don't really know how to use my computer anymore and I don't want to find out. And how do you turn this on and how do you do this? But I'm always reading cookbooks and I'm always interested in what people are doing and what I really am especially interested in. Like, you know, this is a dish that I love is that steamed chicken that you make. And boy, this yes, is about the chicken. simplest thing as could be delivered to your plate. But that's where I think the greats really shine because that chicken, it's perfectly, it's beautifully white. And it looks like something, you know what? It looks like something your Irish grandma, who's not a very good cook would serve you. And then you <laughs> eat it. And it is just like, I mean, it's just as good a job as, anyone could do with a, a great piece of poultry. And, um, and that's the sort of thing. And of course, you know, Chris Bianco and the pizza, everybody makes pizza. We, every one of us is an expert when it comes to pizza. We've had thousands of pizzas in our, our lives. You know, we know more about pizzas than almost anything else. And that, and it's such a simple thing and it's the ingredients are simple and they're the same. And yet to be able to make, um, you know, this circle, it's basically just flour and water and some tomatoes and, and cheese. And maybe you throw a little bit of basil on top to be able to make that better than, you know, than anybody or as good as it could possibly be. That's what I'm, I'm interested in. And I feel the same way, like with a talk show, it's like, it's conventional, you know, it's a, um, there's a desk and there's an audience and, and there's a, a band to the side and there's a guest next to you is they're all the same, but the challenge is to take that and not tear it apart and do it totally differently, but to do it that way, but as well as you possibly can. And I'm not saying, believe me, I am not saying that I'm doing it as, as well as anybody like David Letterman ever did, but I want to do it to the best of my ability. And, um, I think that when I retire from doing the show, I am, I will spend a lot more time actually cooking and not just reading about it and starving. <laughs> Having been to your house, Jimmy's setup, and I mean this, he could easily, I, I've told this to my kitchen designer and architects, like if we do a small restaurant again, it's gotta be exactly like Kimmel's <laughs> kitchen setup because it's, a, it would be the perfect 12 person restaurant, three tables. I love it. I love cooking at your house. I love that you have everything. I even think Bianca told me this seems like an apocryphal story. Do you have a tandoor oven as well? I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that too, because first of all, I love making the, the non and then putting it against the wall of the oven. And then you can see the print of your hand on the I mean, that's personalization, you know, and also it's great for grilling shrimp because the heat source is so far from the grill, but it's also very intense. And there's something about that, that the shrimp comes out exceptionally juicy. You know, sometimes it can get a, a little bit dry on, on the grill and on that tandoor. That's a great place to, I made a grate for the top so I could cook on top of it. If people are like, how did you not see it, Dave? Jimmy's got a lot of equipment like scattered <laughs> all over outside the house. There's a lot. It could be one of the best restaurants easily with the equipment that Jimmy has. And it's something that we can all aspire to as professional chefs. Um, speaking of the tandoor, I, 
when we were doing Lucky Peach, uh, something I knew you were a big fan of, we did a, a joke. Yeah, I that love I that magazine. Should be a real restaurant, but I think you could actually get maybe death threats. Ruth Krishnas. And it was a steakhouse <laughs> where <laughs> instead of having a salamander grill, everything's cooked in the tandoor oven because it's such an amazing piece of equipment. But I think uh, Hindus would get very, very upset at that. Yeah, uh, so. especially the vegetarians, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're eating God. Be <laughs> you're eating, but uh, there's nothing better than a restaurant based on a pun. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'm not joking you, and like, and it's not because I was smoking a lot of pot. It's something I really believe in. You could have the sickest, most amazing Indian restaurant built as a steakhouse because you think about all the sides you got the like cream spinach you got the potatoes aloo you got the chutneys which are basically like steak sauce everything has an analogy to the modern day steakhouse and i really think that the tandoor oven is highly underrated as a way to cook meats not just shrimp like cooking larger cuts of meat in a tandoor is unbelievably good because of the heat that it gets generated you know, Adam Perry Lang got me that tandoor oven. And um, the reason he did is because he had a restaurant in London with Jamie Oliver, and that's how they made all the bread. It's easy to do, too. And I was it was so good. It was so delicious. But also, I just love that handprint. And I said, I have to have this. And I think he got it for, for Christmas one year. And the passion you have for food, I know, carries over into something else. And that's why I know, like, I can see how much you care about food. And makes me understand just how deep you've gone into the fly fishing hole. Yeah, <laughs> I really have. I've gone very deep into the hole. <laughs> um, I love it. Well, it's funny because one thing I could never understand when I was a kid, and I always loved fishing. And we go bait fishing in Lake Mead. Uh, I go with my friend Cleto and his dad. We drive up to Lake Mead and almost never caught anything. Every once in a while, we get a striped bass or uh, catfish or something like that and eating it afterwards was like i don't know it was like a, a celebration of some kind of triumph over nature or something it was a part of it like wow we got something we got something from the land and now we're going to eat it and this is how things are supposed to go on the planet earth but when i started fly fishing under the tutelage of huey lewis they don't keep, you know, and this was puzzling to me at first, but now I understand it completely uh, releasing the fish. And it's important because if everybody kept the fish, then there would be no fish eventually in, uh, over time. And what we want to do is catch the fish. So now we do the world's dumbest thing. We spend thousands of dollars to fly somewhere with thousands of dollars of equipment to trick an animal that has a brain the size of a pea into biting into enjoying a meal that's not really a meal we um reel it in and we look at it and then we put it back <laughs> it's so dumb. we get nothing <laughs> but what is it about i try to explain this to people and not very successful but maybe you can do a better job why do you care about it so much i love it it relaxes me it hypnotizes me it is one of the few times when I am totally present and not thinking about anything else, when there's a fly, and for those who don't know how it works, there's a, a we call it dry fly fishing, which means the fly is floating on top of the water and you are watching it and you never know when that 
fish is going to come up and the river is moving and you're zeroed in on this little speck. And it's just a little speck in most cases. And at any moment, big trout might come up and try to eat it. And you have to be ready to set the hook when it does. And that is uh, that drama. I love the drama. And you talked about being present. And that's what I try to explain too, because if I'm not thinking about that fish or my cast, I'm going to fuck it up. I'm going to miss it. And then I get really mad. So it trains me to be present. So it's hard to explain, but you mentioned the great, great Huey Lewis, someone that I was uh, on a fishing trip with you. And I was arguably, I've never laughed so much in my life. <laughs> Seriously. That was, yeah, that was he's fun. just the most. And he is the best. mysterious man in the world. <laughs> but uh, seriously, like, I don't think the world, we had him on the podcast. Uh, you should listen yeah. to that because the story, like that guy is, I just left with complete reverence for that man. Unbelievable life. And what an amazing individual. But the thing, the great legacy he's left for all anglers is he is as like the the purest version of a fly fisherman because he absolutely refuses to fish with anything but a dry fly. And you're an acolyte apostle uh, of this school. And I, I admire it, number one, because <laughs> even if the fish aren't biting and they're most, most of the things that what fish eat are sub subsurface and they're streamers, which try to mimic like an injured fish, or other animals, or nymphs, right? The, yeah. the larvae of, of insects. That is unequivocally going to increase your chances of catching a fish, but it's not nearly <laughs> as beautiful of a dry fly. Right. But there are days where the fish just aren't biting, and you might want to switch it up. It's like a baseball pitcher being like, okay, they're hitting my fast. You know, I got to change up my, 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 my pitches because <laughs> I, I, otherwise I, it's, I'm going to just get destroyed. So Right. What is it about you guys that prevents you from ever putting on something like a nymph or a streamer? I love streamer fishing. I hate nymph rigging, but. Well, I will say that Huey is not, he has done uh, nymph fishing, streamer fishing. It's just, if there is an even in a 1% chance of catching a trout on a dry fly, he's going to fish dry. Now, if, if there's a 0% chance, perhaps he will, begrudgingly agree but in that case he'd rather just play golf so <laughs> the way he looks at it is <laughs> if there's no dry fly fishing i'm not that interested and i didn't you know he taught me how to do it so when you learn something from somebody that makes a, a big impact on how you approach it for the rest of your life and his philosophy was that is dry or die as they say it is dry fly <laughs> he'd rather catch one fish on a, a dry fly than 50 of them on a nymph, a wet fly. So I think he might actually rather catch zero fish on a dry fly than 50 of them. On a, <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy to people, but I understand it because it is, it's more fun when you, you see that fish come out of the water. And when you, you don't see any of it, you feel the tug, it's still fun but it's just better to catch it up on top. And I plan to preach the gospel of Huey Lewis when it comes to fly fishing uh, to all I take out on the river for the first time, because I do think that you, it's, it, I don't know, it's just, it's better. There's something about it that's better. 
and a single dry fly. He's the, as pure as they come, and you yeah. are carrying on that message. And I, <laughs> I just find it to be hilarious. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> I know this doesn't make any sense to uh, most people, and even if you've fished a few times, you might not understand it. But yeah, sometimes people will put a whole bunch of flies at the end of their line, two, sometimes three different flies, and it's um, it's I don't know. We consider it to be cheating. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other thing that you've been incredibly gracious with me is parental advice. And of all the people, everyone, when you, your, your wife or partner's expecting, they give you a ton of advice. Everyone has their tips that are going to work for everybody. And I now have given your advice to our mutual friends that have, you know, they're expecting their kids. You're the only one that's actually given really good advice about the delivery room and what you need to do. Like uh -huh. I followed your regimen to a T and it worked out perfectly. So well, I, I told you who gave me that advice, right? I mean, I can't claim it as my own advice. Bill Murray gave me that advice. He actually gave it to my wife, Molly, and I was standing there, but here's the advice. It's really simple. Make the delivery room a beautiful experience instead of a hospital experience. There are fluorescent lights above you. That's horrible. You know, the experience of being in a hospital is not great. So bring some Christmas lights along with you. Bring some music along with you. Make it, you know, make it a, a fun place for the baby to come into. You know, welcome, welcome the baby to the world with some style. And it's true. It really does change everything. And it's funny because, you know, some days I'm at work. And I don't necessarily believe in listening to music while you write because I, I think it, it takes your brain in the wrong direction. But some days are hard and, um, and some days are, you feel like you're just you're pushing a rock up a hill. And if you just put, just put some music on, it changes you from the inside and it changes everybody in the room. And um, it's just like, you know, you're working in a kitchen. Um, do you have music? Uh, is music allowed in the, the kitchen at your restaurants? All the time. All right. the time. Music is on all the time. And I would also say, having listened to your playlists, I remember telling myself, like, man, I got to stop listening to my depressing shit. Like, Jimmy's music <laughs> is intensely happy. <laughs> I know it is. It's, it's borderline goofy, but <laughs> I like music that I can sing along to. <laughs> and, and that's why I gravitated toward Huey Lewis and um, others um, whose vocal range are similar to mine. And... Um, yeah, you know, I like the hits of the 80s. I think the 80s were like our 50s. And, um, you know, whether they actually were or not, it just seems like a, it was a happy time. You know, for me, I graduated high school in 1985. And when you are of that age, you're such a sponge. Everything is makes such an impression is so much more meaningful, whether it be music or the things you read or, or movies. They really shape you more than, you know, than you realize at the time. You don't really, you know, you think it's always going to be like this and, and it's not sadly. And, you know, looking back at those moments and listening to that music, it reminds me of like, really like the happiest times of, of my young life, which were like when my friends, um, my friend Cleto got a car and we could just drive around. We could go anywhere we wanted to go. And that feeling of freedom is like something that, I mean, it's sad that you don't realize at the time that this is, enjoy this because this is as much, this is a bigger thrill as you're ever going to have in your life. And, um, but those songs and that kind of music brings me right back to those times.
it literally has changed how I listen to music. <laughs> I, I, I like. I can't tell you how many songs uh, Los Lonely Boys. <laughs> that oh, I song, love those guys. <laughs> so good, so good. Um, listen, I don't want to take your Thanksgiving day, and, and thank you for coming on this pod. But I wanted to ask: Are you going to make another children's book? Because my son loves it. And you want to explain quickly what it was about and the charity involved? Yeah, I wrote a children's book called The Serious Goose, and uh, I, I illustrated it, which was the hard part. Writing it would have taken me probably an hour, <laughs> but illustrating <laughs> it took a very long time. And I'm hypercritical of my artwork because I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid, and I hate to put anything out there that I feel isn't good. And so I worked very hard on it, and the Proceeds went to Children's Hospital, um, not just in Los Angeles, but I made a, a whole bunch of donations to Children's Hospitals all around the country. And um, it was interesting because, you know, I grew up wanting to draw comic books and cartoons and to be able to realize that that dream in a small way was exciting. And it's funny, I was thinking about it yesterday because uh, one of the guys I work with uh, as a birthday gift made me a sculpture of the serious goose and it's really great it looks just it looks exactly like the drawings and uh, I, I was thinking like oh boy do i want to do should i do that again and uh, i don't know i i suppose i wait until somebody uh, asks me to do it again but it was a pretty good experience overall and made a lot of money more than a million dollars and that you know that was great but the experience of doing it was great too and i appreciate you saying that um what are you cooking for thanksgiving david I, I, I didn't buy a turkey. I tried to buy a turkey today and they're all sold out. Is that right? Like, yeah, I tried to go to Whole Foods and they don't have any. And I tried to go online. They don't have any. So, um, major domos doing turkeys, but they're all accounted for. So I just bought a bunch of Korean barbecue from parks uh, in Koreatown. And we're going to do Korean barbecue with stuffing gravy, <laughs> green, green beans. I it's like going to be everything the traditional, but with Korean barbecue instead. That's more fun in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, I think my wife probably wanted turkey, so I'm debating how hard I'm going to look today for, <laughs> for, for turkey. <laughs> wow. Turkeys get sold out. Yeah, I guess that happens even in the Thanksgiving that um, <laughs> nobody has. <laughs> yeah, very sad. What are you doing? I'm uh, I'm making uh, I'm going to smoke a turkey and roast a turkey, and um, I made the gravy last night. I will add the final two ingredients on Thanksgiving Day, and oh, the gravy came out great. I'm very pleased with it. Um, what else am I making? I'm making the stuffing and a couple of other things. Uh, but we do a little bit of a potluck with with my parents and. My kids, actually, my adult kids will will come and my daughter's making cornbread. So it'll be fun. And she's a great artist. And I'll, I'll be honest, your your son, Kevin, is one of the funniest. He's an amazing singer. I think he should just make, make music, too. You, you know, he your does, whole family he is actually, a blast. He does make uh, music, but he's a little bit shy, you know, but he is a funny. Yeah, he's a very, very funny kid. Very funny. And that's one of the great things. There's, a, you know. One of the great things about being a parent is these children then grow up to be adults that you love hanging out with more than anybody. 
And you don't think about that when they're a kid and, you know, they're being crazy or you have to like run after them all the time that like, oh, I'm actually going to have like, I've just grown some friends for myself in my own image. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that too, man. Uh, you know, spending time with Hugo is the best and he is wishing adorable. you the best Thanksgiving. Thanks. Same to you, pal. Well, that was our conversation with Jimmy Kimmel. If you haven't seen the episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on ABC, you can watch it on Hulu. And uh, I'm incredibly thankful that they gave me the opportunity. Yes, I have a gambling problem. And I am very, very happy that Southern Smoke got a million dollars. Stay tuned for another podcast this week. And uh, give us five stars, however you rate this show on iTunes, Spotify, you name it. <laughs>